0: Welcome to this episode of Living Legends brought to you by the New Farm Insider. I'm your host today, John Reitman, and our guest is Dr. Al Turgeon, Professor Emeritus of Turfgrass Science at Penn State University. Dr. Turgeon, thank you for joining us today and welcome.
1: How are you, John? Nice talking to you. Likewise.
0: You've had a very long and successful career there at Penn State. Now your title is Professor Emeritus. Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since 2012.
1: Well, I retired in December of 2011, so it's, it's going on six years. And, uh, I gradually faded into retirement. I, after I retired, I continued to teach online for several years. Uh, I was doing a lot of international travel. Now I'm, I've dwindled down to, uh, just a little bit of online teaching and essentially stopped traveling except for the GCSA conference. I enjoy going there every year. But that's about it. Uh, Mostly I'm doing other things now.
0: What are some of the things you're doing in your free time now that you have more of it?
1: Well, I I exercise more, go to the Y every morning and do water aerobics. uh, I'm involved in a lot of military affairs. I was a a veteran from Vietnam, and I'm uh, I'm a member of the um, board of directors of the Pennsylvania Military Museum and involved in some other activities relating to Vietnam, uh, particularly since the uh, Burns' film has, has been coming out, uh, and I'm doing a little bit of writing. I'm trying my hand at uh, writing a novel, assisted by my daughter, who's a novelist, and uh, and I'm also writing an education book uh, based on my experiences. So I, I manage to keep myself plenty busy. Plus, my wife always has a list of things for me to do as well. So your novel is based on... Oh, it, it's, it's a military novel. It's uh, a little bit reflective of my own experiences, but, but goes well beyond that.
0: I believe looking at your CV mentions how you were an officer in the Army back in the 60s and a helicopter pilot. Tell us a little bit about that experience.
1: Yeah, well, when I graduated from Rutgers in 1965, I got a commission uh, in the Army and went to infantry school and then helicopter school and then spent a year in Vietnam uh, with an assault helicopter company. And, uh, and that was that was quite an experience. Um, I uh, did combat assaults and uh, resupply missions and reconnaissance and command and control and side warfare, whatever they asked us to do. Um, managed to survive that and came home. And uh, my last year in the Army, they uh, told me I was slated to be a flight instructor. And I told them I really didn't want to fly anymore. I prefer a non-flying job if possible. And I'd had a course in meteorology at Rutgers. So I agreed to do that and in the process fell in love with teaching, and that what led to graduate school, and after that, a 40-year academic career. So I sort of married together my uh, growing up in the turf grass industry with teaching, and, and uh, that was my career.
0: Throughout your career in academia, do you have any idea at all how many of your former students have gone on to become superintendents?
1: Oh, gosh, it's, it's many hundreds because, um, you know, I taught at the University of Illinois. I had a bunch of students there. Um, I was with Texas A&M for a while, but I was at a research and extension center. So I didn't really teach there. I was with True Green for a while. Then I came to Penn State as head of agronomy and began teaching within a year um, and then uh, expanded my teaching over time. And then in the uh, uh, late 90s developed online program, and we've had uh, thousands of students go through that. So, um, you know, I have no idea the total number of students that I've had who who have gone on to careers in golf turf as well as sports turf and even the lawn care industry, but it's it's many thousands.
0: You've mentored so many golf course superintendents and sports turf managers, and throughout your career, who who was your mentor?
1: Oh, early on, I uh, certainly my father. He, he uh, uh, I grew up in his restaurant, but he sold it when I was 14. I learned work ethic from him. Uh, my uncle was a golf superintendent. I got introduced to to golf turf management uh, under him, worked at Metropolis Country Club through my high school and college years. Um, in the Army, I had some mentors. Uh, Major Butler was one, and there were others. Um, graduate school, I had a, a, a wonderful uh, um, advisor, uh, Dr. Bill Meggett. Um, and I, at the undergrad level at Rutgers, uh, Dr. Ralph Engel was a, uh, an advisor. Um, and then later on in my career, uh, there were many people I admired. I, I, I loved Reed Funk, uh, breeder at Rutgers. Uh, I admired uh, um, uh, Joe Dewitt at Penn State, uh, um, Jim Beard at the Michigan State where I did graduate work. So I've had different mentors and different people who've inspired me uh, throughout my career. What kind
0: of a restaurant did your father own?
1: I owned a luncheonette, um, I bought it when I was about six or seven years old and, and had it till I was 14. So when I was in grammar school, I, I would uh, uh, come home uh, uh, to the restaurant every day and work for a couple of hours. So I wasn't into sports or anything. I was into working. But I did develop a love for food and for cooking, and that's one of my hobbies today.
0: What do you like to cook?
1: Oh, gosh, um, uh, uh, I focus especially on a, Italian food. I'm Italian on my mother's side. And I uh, grew up in that tradition, and uh, I make the best lasagna of anybody in the world <laughs> uh, and do some other things that are pretty good. And I like Asian food. I really like lots of different foods. My wife grew up in Mexico, and so she uh, she's very good at Mexican food and an excellent cook generally. So.
0: Which explains why you have to remain active and
1: uh, diligent about <laughs> your exercise <laughs> regimen. That's right, yeah, to maintain my girlish figure. So
0: you mentioned an uncle. Did you say who was a superintendent?
1: Yeah, his name is Bruno Vadella. He's 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 deceased now. He died about uh, uh, 17 years ago. But but he was um, he was at Metropolis Country Club in White Plains, New York, and and uh, many of the family members worked there over time. And he had been there for many years. I think when he retired, he had 44 years at Metropolis. Um, but he was um, he guided me. Uh, he was he was my uh, my closest uncle. Uh, would babysit me when I was little, and uh, and would take me out to the golf course on Sunday mornings, and and uh, and I would uh, change the tee markers while he changed the cupping position on the green. So I did that when I was uh, eight, nine years old. And so when I got old enough to work, age 14, then I actually got a job there, worked there all through high school and college years. So he and I were very close, and even. As I moved on in my career, I'd always uh, come back and visit him. had a very close relationship.
0: What was it about the turf business that attracted you?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, um, I, I loved being outside. Uh, it was much, much more fun working outside than inside in a restaurant. Um, I, I, I found uh, the more uh, experience I got, the more uh, intrigued I became with the turf grass system uh it's it's a marvelously uh, complex and mystifying system and uh and there's so many different dimensions to it uh the relationship between the grass and the soil uh between the 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 turf and the environment and then the human interface um it's it's the most fascinating aspect of agriculture i think that exists and and i I continue to be fascinated with it to this day
0: hang on right there dr turgeon we're going to take a quick break for a brief message from our sponsor and we'll be right back pinpoint fungicide from new farm americas contains a new active ingredient to deliver outstanding early and late season control of dollar spot pinpoint provides superintendents and turf management professionals with an excellent fungicide rotation partner to optimize disease management stewardship Pinpoint's unique and targeted active ingredient has been proven in university performance trials and delivers outstanding control of dollar spot, take-all patch, fairy ring, and brown patch to ensure a clean field of play. For more information, visit newfarm.com. We're back on Living Legends, brought to you by the New Farm Insider. Our guest today is Dr. Al Turgeon, Professor Emeritus, at Penn State University. Since you got into the business, there have been an awful lot of changes. Throughout the years, how did you stay current with so many dramatic changes that were occurring in the field?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, one is is by staying current with the literature because um, uh, turf people uh, uh, from the early part of my career until the end were publishing more and more and there were more and more people involved, and so there was more information coming out. So it, it was a, a major task to to be well-read and to keep current with all the things that were going on. The, the second reason is, is you go to conferences, and uh, sometimes they're scientific conferences, and sometimes they're educational conferences. I did a lot of that, and uh, the advantage there is, one, uh, not only do you have the opportunity to share what you've learned with others, but you also listen to what other people have to say i always enjoyed listening to other academics as well as as field professionals and learn from their experiences the third thing is is you've got to travel you've got to get around and, and you've got to see turf i've i've looked at turf uh, uh, on golf courses athletic fields and so on all over the world all over europe asia Um, Australia, New Zealand, all over North America, Central America, even a little bit into South America. And I've always been fascinated by the the integration of climate, soil, and genotype and how that varies as you move from one location to another. So your whole working life is a learning experience. and um, and there's never enough time to do everything that you want to do or learn all the things you want to learn. But I found myself continually motivated to to learn as much as I could any time I could uh, under every circumstance. And I think that's the essence of the academic lifestyle. That's why I enjoyed it so much because I was never bored, Uh, never really had time to do very much else because it was so all-consuming.
0: You played a significant role in the Penn State World Campus, the online curriculum. And that was in a time when nobody else was, or very few places were conducting any sort of education online at all. What did you see and what did Penn State see that made you think this was where education was headed and there's a need here that needs to be filled when nobody else was doing it?
1: Part of it was the fact that throughout my career, I've always used illustrations. Uh, um, even as a, as a brand new professor, I would hire artists to illustrate things um, and show the salient features of things that sometimes are obscured in a, in a natural photograph. So, for example, if you wanted to see what thatch looked like and its relationship to a turfgrass community, you could see it better in my illustrations than you can in actual photographs of thatchy turf. And so over the years, I accumulated quite an inventory of artwork as well as photographs. And in the early 90s, somebody came into my office, and uh, I think I was still department head at the time, and then said, you want to see something cool? And they showed me Mosaic, which was an early web browser. And the one thing that that impressed me with Mosaic is you could take illustrations like the ones I had accumulated, you could scan them, make them available on the web, you could add narrative text, and you could add navigation icons by which to move from one illustration to the next in series. And when I saw that, I thought, that's the future of education, to make information and, and well-developed learning resources available Now, at the time, uh, I I was involved in distance education administratively. We were trying to do extension programs via satellite, and I became familiar with interactive television, and I thought neither of those really was the future. They were expensive, they were inconvenient, they were complicated, um, and and I thought they were um, uh, expensive ways to do second-rate education. But when I saw the potential of online, I thought, that's the future. It's going to be used to enhance the quality of resident education, and it's going to enable us to extend our reach to people all over the world. And so that's when I decided to get out of administration and devote my life to that. And so that's what I started doing in the middle uh, 90s. And I ran into, you wouldn't believe the obstacles I ran into. People absolutely convinced that not only could you not teach that way, but somehow or other was wrong to do that. And I, I simply saw the upside potential and uh, managed to scrape together a few dollars and, and was able to fund the things that I wanted to do. And I, unbeknownst to me, at the same time, the university was, had some task forces working to explore online education. And so in the later 90s, uh, our interests converged. And uh, when they decided to start the world campus, I was asked to be a member of the study team that that put it together. And then the very first course taught was my introductory turfgrass course. And at the time, we had had a a really tough go because a lot of people just wouldn't do it or weren't interested or didn't think it had potential. But over time, I was able to convince my colleagues to, uh, in the turf program to also help develop courses, and eventually we developed our certificate programs, eventually a, a bachelor's and uh, associate program, and the last thing I was able to get done before I retired was an online master's program. So it was it was a fun exercise. I really enjoyed it, and it was fun being part of a of an innovative crew at Penn State that really ushered this thing in.
0: Throughout the duration of your career, did you see changes in the students that you were getting?
1: Mainly the difference we saw early on was the tremendous explosion in the number of students. When we introduced the turfgrass science major at Penn State, I think that was 1992, I think we had 12 people who were were agronomy majors with a turf option. That quickly expanded to 250. Uh, on um, um, uh, turf grass science majors, um, some of those students weren't well qualified. Some of them couldn't pass chemistry, and so we instituted a chemistry requirement before they could start taking turf courses. That flushed out about fifty out of the two hundred and fifty, and then we we maintained a pretty high uh, enrollment for a long time. But then things began to decline, as uh, particularly as we got into, after 2000, the number of golf courses. Um, they weren't being built as rapidly, and then we started to see net losses. And then the number of opportunities declined. And so we, we saw our student numbers decline as well. As far as the work ethic of students, that seems to vary. Some Sometimes um, uh, you get students who just aren't motivated to study. And I would uh, I would tell them, particularly in the introductory course, how do you expect to be uh, successful in a career if you can't even review the material in preparation for taking a quiz every week? I said, you've got to do better than that if you expect to be successful. Um, and with and it worked and Summit didn't. One of the most important things that I, I was able to do and that I derived considerable satisfaction from was, was using case-based teaching. I began learning about that. I actually read books from the Harvard Business School and elsewhere about this case-based approach to teaching, there were no turfgrass cases, so I began developing them, and then developed a, a case studies course. I think we taught it for the first time in 1993 or 94, and, uh, and then I had to adapt that to online as well. But there's a there's an approach where you immerse a student into a problematic situation, you you let them struggle a while, and then you coach them through. So you don't you don't just lecture at them, but you to help them figure out how to negotiate a uh, an analytical process and then a problem-solving process and what i found was even the, the seemingly mediocre students really warmed up to that because it was relevant to the things they felt that they were going to eventually be doing and it got them experience in problem solving and in order to solve a problem you have to acquire technical information and so it was a way to to motivate them to study material they otherwise uh, uh, didn't care much uh, about studying.
0: So much of your work ethic you attributed to working in a family business. How much of your work ethic can you attribute to your time in the military?
1: I don't know. I I think my work ethic in the military was a reflection of what I'd learned earlier because uh, I was a helicopter pilot but I I always wanted to do other things and I always looked for side jobs and then when I when I uh, moved units and they needed an instructor pilot and they needed a maintenance officer, I was happy to take on those responsibilities because it it meant I just didn't just didn't fly and then forget about it. That there were that I was able to contribute to the mission in other ways, and that's always stuck with me. When I went to grad school, I hit the ground running and um, and uh, didn't uh, take much leisure time and was able to knock out a master's and Ph.D. in three years. And when I went to Illinois, I hit the ground running there and, and built a program uh, pretty aggressively. And maybe I was playing catch-up from the time lost in Vietnam, I don't know. But, but um, I've, I've always been met, motivated by it. And I think, in part, it was the work ethic I learned as a, as a boy. And in part, I think it was because of the war experience and, and learning how precious uh, uh, and short life is and how it's important to make the most of it. Well, Dr. Turgeon,
0: I want to thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and we
1: appreciate your time. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it. You take care.
0: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. (gasps)